0: Today, I have the pleasure of uh, kicking off our new series, new preaching series um, on Genesis. But I uh, don't want to be too deceptive to you in that um, we're not going to look at the whole of Genesis in the next term. Uh, we're just going to look at three chapters of Genesis. We're going to be looking uh, for the next term at G- Genesis chapters one to three. Now, this, these passages are some of the most uh, famous. One uh, well, the most famous stories in the whole Bible, I would imagine. We're going to be looking to we'll see uh, later today uh, the story, uh, the Christian uh, creation story, um, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and that stuff. And I would assume whether you've been to this church loads of times, or any church loads of times, or never, you would know the the bare bones of these stories. This is probably among the most famous pieces of literature in human history, uh, which we're going to be looking at um, over the next uh, while, well, over the next term. But it's probably worth saying right off the bat uh, that these passages are not without their controversies as well. A couple of chuckles. Some people will be aware of what I'm talking about. To put it bluntly, these three chapters cause Christians to fall out with one another. And that is bad as far as I'm concerned, okay? So that happens. M- maybe even more concerningly, and this may affect some, some of you guys here today as well, for, for some people looking into Christianity... Um, these chapters can cause a real problem. So there might be some people, again, it, it could well be you're in a similar situation today, looking in and they, they see something in the person of Jesus that they think is very attractive. And like, mm, this, guy's, this guy's great. And even, even their friends, their Christian friends, you guys here, they think there's something in their lives that's, that's different, that's, that's full of joy and hope, and there's attractive about it. They might have come along to church or seen the church community and seen that kind of in, in other people. But actually, they think, well, however good that is, there's Genesis 1 to 3. And so I could never sign up to that if I have to sign up to an interpretation of that because it goes against everything I know about science, everything I know about history, and in many ways, everything I know about common sense. That's a big deal. And therefore, it's really important that we handle these chapters carefully uh, over this time because it's my conviction, I might be wrong, but I'm I'm pretty sure on this one, uh, that God didn't put these in the Bible so he could gleefully watch Christians squabble with one another. I'm not sure that was his intention, or even to stop people becoming Christians. I'm not sure that's why they're in the Bible uh, either, and so I think we should look at them uh, carefully and take the risk of delving into some difficult passages in some ways, but passages also incredibly rich and very, very, uh, we've, I, I, my prayers very fruitful for us. Um, now, one of the Main things, reasons I think these chapters are here, Genesis one to three, the first three chapters of the whole Bible, is to provide the foundations to our understanding of reality. Okay, I don't know whether uh, you thought of this before, whether you're a Christian here or not, or whether you're religious in any way or not. There are certain questions that you need to have an answer to, and I guess at the moment you will have an answer to, even if you've not thought about them uh, too much. Questions like these: Who are we? Why are we alive? What is this world we find ourselves living in? What's gone wrong with it? And what's the solution to those problems? Those are not religious questions. Those are human questions. And all of us will come to conclusions on them. Your, con- your conclusions may not be consistent with one another, but you will have answers to live as a human being. You have to ha- have an approach to those questions. And all of those questions I've just mentioned are addressed in the first three chapters of Genesis. So it's, it's really important. And we don't want to approach this lightly. So I I want to just flesh out uh, today's very much a very introductory talk, uh, as you're going to see. But I want to flesh out what we're going to be doing over the next term. Because on Sunday mornings, for the next three months, we're going to be looking through uh, these chapters. Uh, th- this is the first talk of that. But we didn't want to leave it at that. No, no, no. That would be that would be unfair to you good people. Okay. So on a Wednesday evening, uh, myself and Gemma at our house are having a life group where we're going to be talking through uh, this in a bit more depth. It's like the extended director's commentary on the sermons uh, and with a bit of discussion. You know. And we started off this week and it was great. Just so you guys know, there's still space there if you'd like to trek over to Kings Norton uh, on a Wednesday evening. Uh, We've got about a few spaces left. So come and speak to me or sign up on the website. Please feel free uh, to do that. And that's fine if you've been here for ages or not. Uh, just your first time, you're more than welcome to do that. So that's happening. Also on Monday the 22nd of October, feel free to to write this down, but it's on the church calendar, so uh, you can just check on that. Monday the 22nd of October, we're putting on a workshop uh, at the church offices relating to the thorny question of human origins that you never know, it might possibly come up or not in Genesis 1 to 3. But we're going to spend a whole evening looking at that in a little bit more detail. I'm going to lead that workshop. You're probably thinking, I I imagine, I'm just trying to pitch towards your head, this. You guys are just generous to us. Johnny, you're so kind. Like, just, we really appreciate this. Well, thank you for that uh, maybe imagined thought in your head right now. But I've not even done. If that was enough, well, that would be more than enough. But we also thought we should really uh, we should really go a bit further than this. So we've we've got the one of the foremost Christian thinkers alive in the world today, as you do, to come to Birmingham Town Hall on Monday, the uh, 19th of November. Professor John Lennox, uh, uh, Emeritus uh, Professor of Maths at Oxford University, is going to be coming to do a talk all about about the interaction of science and christianity uh, quite broadly it would be a, it would be great if you guys would be really, really benefit from it uh, but also friends of yours who are not Christians would really benefit from it. So you know what? That is what we've got going on uh, this term. And today, we're going to do things slightly differently to kick everything off than what we normally do. Uh, just so you know, if you've not been to Church Central before, normally what we do on a Sunday morning is we would uh, take a verse or maybe a couple of verses. Possibly if we're pushing the boat out, a paragraph. You know, don't be too risky and stuff like that, but we might do that. Uh, and we would look at what it means, uh, how we can apply it to our lives. Okay? Uh, today, we're not going to do a verse. I'm going to do two verses. We're not going to do a, even just a chapter. We're going to do all three chapters just today. Yeah, oh, look, that's good. Okay, we're doing all three. We're going to be here till mid-afternoon. No, no, just joking. Um, we're going to do all three, and really want to give a chance for you to engage directly with the Word of God, larger chunks of it than we would normally deal with. And Liz here, who's primed and ready to go, okay, is going to read through each chapter, and in between, I'm just going to give some introductory comments with the, the, the purpose there is really to clear the ground of some stuff so we can kind of hopefully get a picture of what's going on and hear from God, hopefully hear from God today, but also in the rest of this series and come ready to really uh, get to grips with what God's saying in these important passages, okay? Does that make sense? Yes. Good. And you even respond. That's good. We might, I, might, I might use that later in the talk. Great. So without further ado, I'll move this to one side. And Liz, can we welcome Mrs. Liz Brown, please? Thank you.
1: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. And God called the space sky. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land, and the water seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant, and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants, and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set these lights in the sky to light the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water, and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock and small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look! I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth.
0: Great stuff. We'll have Liz back in a in a minute. <clears throat> Genesis is an ancient book written for the ancient world, but we believe with tremendous relevance, obviously, uh, for us today. Now, let's do a little bit of background. Um, Genesis is the the first book of what's called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch, like Pentagon, uh, Pentagon, five-sided shape. Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, what what Jews uh, would call the Torah, their their holy book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, traditionally, the author of the Pentateuch is seen as Moses. Moses, the great uh, Hebrew leader who led the people of Israel out of uh, Egypt. Now uh while well Many commentators would agree that Moses was probably responsible for most of uh, the Pentateuch, including Genesis. Uh, they'd also understand that there was an important work of editing and compiling uh, that went on using different sources at different times as well in all this. So, what we've just heard was probably composed, and this, <laughs> this doesn't narrow it down hugely, but some point between 2600 BC uh, and compiled into the book we have as Genesis, some point towards the end of that period okay now you might be thinking now well, we've just had this magnificent rich description of this incredible passage and you're here talking to us about pentagons or pentagons this is incredibly dry bring back liz okay <laughs> uh, but um the reason i wanted to just to, to underline this was because i want to alert us to a very important fact about this chapter and these next two chapters this is ancient literature written by ancient people to ancient people when we read the Bible, we understand that God does mysterious things through the Bible in a sense that it's written for us, in that we can benefit from it. But we've got to be clear, it wasn't written to us. Not one bit of the Bible was written to us. It was written to, usually to specific people in specific places. This is ancient literature written by ancient people to ancient people. Now, some might say, though, uh, but come on, this, that's, yeah, fair enough, but does it really matter? I believe the Bible's God's word, and if you think that, I would be with you and we as a church would be with you. Um, but you might go and say, well, then what does it matter who wrote it or when it was written? We just simply, let's not beat around the bush. We take it as God's literal truth. Just do what it says. can any other thing is just trying to wriggle out of what the Bible says. Look, it's just God's literal truth. That's it. Now, unfortunately, though, things are not as simple as that when we come to the Bible things might be as simple as that in other religions of the world. So there are some religions in the world who would see their holy books as being pretty much literally dictated by God. God finds someone who's, uh, who can write, I, I presume, uh, or and can listen, and he says, Right write this down in so so many words and they go okay just checking on that one yeah okay and it's written down and essentially what they would believe is that is the the dictation of God and in that case it doesn't matter who wrote it down or what their personality was or or their cultural kind of preferences it just wouldn't matter to the meaning of the text but the Bible is just not like that It's not like that at all. Even in the transmission of God's word, God gives incredible dignity to human beings and even our cultures and the way that we are. Explain what I mean. We as a church, we believe, as I kind of implied a minute ago, that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that in it, God speaks authoritatively and infallibly. But he does those things through people and through their individual personalities and their cultures. In the Bible, uh, from start to finish, there are over 40 different authors, and the books in many ways, they are very, very human. And so you get these books that are these sweeping historical narratives, you do get them in the Bible, but you would also get uh, personal letters from one person to a friend, you get those in the Bible as well. Some parts of the Bible are read uh, and are written like, almost like formal legal contracts and other bits are love songs. For us, then, when we approach the Bible and look to hear what God is saying, we can't just say, just take it literally. I'm afraid we have to look a little bit deeper than that. I'm doing a lot of trying to get into your heads today. I hope you don't mind. Uh, but, you know, the, our, we, our family have been in the north for a while. And some of you might be thinking, flipping out, I don't know what they're doing up north. But Johnny's come back a bit liberal, isn't he? Okay. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> If you're thinking that, I think I can, I can get you on the same page as me in a minute. So if you don't want to be on the same page as me, you probably need to leave the room now. But I think we all agree with this, really, when we think about it. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, Song of Solomon is a book in the Bible. Very odd book, but it is a book in the Bible. Um, and it says, uh, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1, a star-crossed lover says these words to his beloved. Your eyes are dove's. Unless the physiology was slightly different in those days, or this woman was really rather unique, okay? I don't think we're taking that completely literally, are we? But if you are, that's fine, you know. <laughs> live and let live. But anyway, um, <laughs> Isaiah 55 12 would say this. The prophet Isaiah, he talks about a time when the mountains and hills will burst into song. I don't know if any of you are oh, awaiting that day and you go rambling and think, oh, can't hear it quite yet. Um, also, when, and the trees will clap their hands. I'm assuming I'm not causing anyone to fall into a huge crisis of faith at this moment because it's obvious. We would say, yeah, of course we don't take those literally. There is nuance involved here because we would understand it's to do with the genre, it's to do with all of those sort of things. And that nuance, while it's different in different parts of the Bible, needs to be taken throughout. So the question must be then, well, how, as Christians, do we read the Bible then? How do we understand the Bible? Well, the most important thing, I think, is one of the most important things, is trying to work out what the human author of the passage was trying to communicate at the time. What is their intended meaning? If we can work that out, we can hear what God is saying to us from the passage, because God has entrusted his word to those human authors. That's what he did. So we've got to do the work ourselves. So think, okay, follow me so far. What then is the author's intended meaning in Genesis chapter 1? Well, as we'll see in weeks to come, in these passages, I think in, it's very clear in many ways what the author is trying to communicate in rather uh, uh, regarding bigger picture things, okay? Uh, some of those questions that I mentioned uh, earlier, questions like, who are we? What's our purpose? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution? Actually, it's pretty clear what the author is communicating on those things, but it's much harder to work out what the author is communicating about the finer detail in these passages. So let's take a random question that I'm sure no one has thought of at all this morning so far. How many days did it take for God to make the world, and how long ago? Okay, Can't Get your mind into that question. I'm sure no one's, no one's ever considered that, uh, looking at Genesis 1-3. to 3. Well, it's a question we bring to the text, but it's incredibly likely the author uh, didn't have that in mind at all when he was writing Genesis 1-3. to 3. Ancient people did not think like we think. This is not meant as a scientific textbook. Mainly because science, as we would understand it, wasn't invented for about 3,000 years after this was written. Now, just again to bring balance here, that doesn't mean the passage doesn't speak about those things. It could do. It just means, though, that we probably need to hold our opinions on those details a little bit lightly, and the details in the the chapters following, because they will be interpretations that we're dealing with some quite foggy territory in that regard. So as we move on, don't want to give too many spoilers, <laughs> but we'll see other strange details could well draw us in and distract our attention. Uh, talking snakes, apparently magical trees, uh, a man made from the dust and a woman made from somebody's ribs. My, my, my uh, real kind of plea to you would be, in all of this, please, can we resist the temptation to get carried away with speculation about those things and actually try to get our head into the, the, the our minds into the head of the author. What's the author really trying to communicate here? actually, when it comes to very ancient literature, in which this is some of the earliest literature we have, that's not an easy question to answer when we come to detail. So can i going to put my plea like this. I like to, to kind of settle this at the beginning, is can we please approach these passages humbly? Can we approach these passages humbly? I mean that with humble hearts, and that's how we always come to the Bible as Christians. We come saying, look, God, you're in charge. I submit to you, and I submit to your word, and if you say it, I'll go with it. So that's how we approach the Bible. We, we approach these passages like this. He, he is the final authority on things. But also, could we approach it with humble minds? Because some of the questions that we as 21st century people bring to these passages are not necessarily the questions the ancient authors wanted to bring to these passages. And yes, that's the case. I'm sorry, however strongly you feel about those questions, you probably need to park them if we're going to do honor to God's word. And is a just with that plea, just I'll put a second thing in as well. Can we agree to disagree well, as well? <laughs> uh, uh, this is good, you guys are good. You can come again, I like this. Um, there'll be people in this room here who will be asking the question now, how on earth could someone respect the first three chapters of Genesis and believe in an old earth or anything close to Darwinian evolution? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but I know you're here. I know you're here in here somewhere. Um, Just for you guys, particularly, but for everyone else as well, it's worth knowing this as well. There'll be people in this room who will be asking the question, how can anyone read these chapters seriously and think they have anything to do at all with biology, geology, anthropology? You're here too. And actually, in this series, we're not going to spend lots of time trying to change your opinions on those details. You might well be thinking those things at the end, and you still might be in this room. And what we'd like to say is, can we just disagree well on these things? And can we, more important than that, try to focus on what the author of Genesis is actually trying to communicate rather than the controversies that fascinate us and actually are incredibly divisive a lot of the time. Is that a deal? I will take the 50% who as a deal for everybody here. Fantastic. And on that note, I think we should continue with Genesis. Liz.
1: For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, Springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden, then dividing into four branches, the first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed around, flowed east of the land of Asher. And the fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame.
0: So... Again, just trying to skip the details there. We will get on some of that stuff in, in future, but just want to paint out the, um, the picture of reality this story gives us because it's important that we don't miss this because it's reasonably fundamental to what's going on. Reality, according to Genesis 1 and 2, has two main elements to it. And one, which is definitely number one, the first element, is God very important in these passages, and it's important with that other stuff, we don't miss this. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Genesis 2, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The key player around, all, uh, around whom all else revolves is clearly God. Now, the other day, my seven-year-old daughter came to me with a theological quandary, which uh, as seven-year-old daughters tend to do. And uh, she was in a bit of a bewilderment about something because her friend had said to her, look, Hope, uh, I believe in God, but I'm not a Christian. And Hope's like, whoa, what is this? I thought that was what being a Christian was. What's happening here? How is this possible? Ah, Okay, it was that kind of conversation. And then she wanted some sweets or something. I don't know what happened next. Um, but um, and you, you, you might be thinking, oh, you've really failed in this parenting stuff, Johnny, haven't you? But she's only seven, so I think there's some time to help her on this. Um, but I think we can make a similar mistake actually, even though for some of the, the details, we might be slightly different in that we don't understand being a Christian is, well, there's obviously Jesus is reasonably important. There's other stuff around the edges uh, as well that's, that's there. But actually, when it comes to God, well, what do we need to do with God? We just believe in him. That's what we do. Tick, done the God bit. Let's do the rest of Christianity. That's not the Christian approach to God at all. Christians aren't just people who believe there is a God out there somewhere. Christians, actually, we're not even people who just think God should be respected and listened to alone. Now, Christianity, as a way of living and a way of thinking, puts God absolutely center stage at all times. And that is a key difference. God is the main actor, God is the key player, God is the beginning. If you read the story on a little bit, you'll find he is also the end. God is not someone that we just pray to or sing to or think about fondly. No, he's the center of all reality. I want to challenge you and provoke you today. Has God just become that one you believe in that you talk to and do some Christian stuff towards every now and again? You've missed it. It's right here at at the beginning. What what God's looking for, no, he wants to be at the center. He wants to be at the beginning. When you're going through tough times, do you just instantly fall back on God? When you go through good times, do you just instantly thank God, go to Him? Do, do you rely on God to define who you are and what you think about the world? Because that's the only place that God should have in our lives. If there's a God there, that's it's in the beginning. God, there's no other place for Him. That's the first thing in this this passage is this picture of reality, and the second thing is us. So God, number one, two, number two, amazingly, us. And there's a sense, kind of, almost, we, we read this and you. Pump out your breast and go, ah, oh, great. We're privileged. We're created somehow. and we're, I'm looking forward to getting into this stuff because it's increasingly controversial above, in order, of the other animals. We're given responsibility in some ways and this kind of ontological superiority to the, uh, to the other creatures. And you think, great. And it is great. And it's important we rec- rec- recognize that. But we must also not get carried away with ourselves because we were created above those other creatures, but we were still created and while that might sound incredibly straightforward, it is vital that we understand this in our day and age. We live in a world that would idolize self-made people. Kylie Jenner recently became the youngest person on the Forbes list of America's richest self-made women. That phrase is incredibly interesting. You get someone who's self-made and you say, well, how did you get to this point? I did it. Well, how did you get to be who you are? I made myself like this. That's not a trick phrase. That's actually how people are thinking increasingly. We are taught that we determine our own destiny, that we write our own story. As William Ernest Henry concluded his famous poem, trivia, anyone know William Ernest Henry's famous poem? Invictus. You heard that poem? Still know. The West beat you on cultural points there, guys. Unlucky. They got that one. <laughs> um, but the, the end of the poem is quite famous. It says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Very rousing, Genesis one to three would say. Also, very wrong, incorrect. Okay, none of us are the masters of our fate, the captains of ourselves, or self-made. We were created. We are creatures, and while we have huge amounts of authority over aspects of our lives and even the world around us, we don't define ourselves. When we ask the question, "Who are we?" we don't go, "Oh, I'm going to look deep inside at how I think." You know what? God's enabled us to have massive bandwidth on that question. But we don't have full bandwidth on that question, because if you're here today, and I mean, some of you guys who are students, I guess, maybe your first time, maybe uh, you've been coming for a while, uh, kind of, some of us remember this, late teens, early 20s, the big question is, who am I? Who am I? What's my place in this world? And it's it's a good question to wrestle with, you know. I want to lift a burden off you. You, Your culture would tell you that answer that question is completely on you. You have to find that out yourself, and we're not going to give you any help at all. Your biology doesn't help you. Nothing helps you. Bible say, nah, you want to find the answer to that question. You are a creature. You were created. Go to your creator. We're going to look into that much more as we go on as well. So, with that said, Liz, I think we're ready for chapter three. Come on. Who knows what's going to happen?
1: The Serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you mustn't eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? Uh, The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, but he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil, What if they reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
0: So let's reflect very briefly before we finish on on the last chapter. Um, I I said at the beginning there were kind of five questions that we all have to address as As people, I wonder if you can spot which one (laughs) this chapter really lands on. I said, "Who are we? Why are we alive? What's the world we find ourselves living in? What's gone wrong with it, and what's the solution?" Question to the floor: uh, Which of these questions is the key one here? What's What's gone wrong? This is a a chapter all about what's gone wrong with the world. An incredibly important uh, question. And again, we'll, we'll look at this a lot more in future weeks. But just a couple of kind of preliminary comments uh, really. The fact that what's gone wrong with the world is embedded right here in the Bible says some really important things to us. It, it says firstly that this isn't something we can just, when you say what's wrong with the world, we can't just ditch that on a group of people that have gone a bit off at some point. The story doesn't start with, hey they were great for, for ages and then these, the, the bankers came along and then they caused the problem and well that's, that's that. We, we can't go down lines like that because this is based in the, in the very archetype of humanity. In, in Adam and in Eve. It's not also, by the way, this passage addresses this what's wrong with the world is not something that is light and that we can just think, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, once we've got the, once we've moved on a little bit more, once we've invented a few more stuff, once we've got the iPhone XSS, maybe, we'll just, we'll realize this is an illusion. We'll, we'll just brush these things away and everything's going to be fine. No, that's not what this passage says. It, what it's, it's saying to us, alerting us right at the start. What's wrong with the world is a deep-seated problem at the core of who we are as people, and it's in every single one of us. And that's uh, tragic. I mean, there's a tragic image from Michelangelo uh, of what happens. There's a distortion in, in human beings, in their faces, and the, the rejection, the throwing out of the, of the garden, away from God's presence. It's, it's, it's an awful thing. But as we finish, do you notice one other thing? One of those, the the other questions I mentioned is also just hinted at in this passage. And that's the last one. And it's, what's the solution to this problem? You You might think, well, where did that come from? Well, it comes very strangely in God's curse on this troublesome snake that there is, okay? God goes through and he, he curses the snake. And he says to the snake, the offspring of the woman, there'll be enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman, you can say, well, that could be all people. And yeah, let's face it, that one came true, didn't it? Because none of us like snakes that much. Well, you know, a, a few people might do. Again, my daughter would like a snake, so maybe I, I don't want to go too much into that. Uh, issues in the Mellor family, okay? Please don't, don't judge her. Um, but yeah, generally, humans and snakes haven't got on. But then he goes on to say, he, so he's talking about one offspring, now not all offspring, he will strike your head, that's the offspring of the woman talking to the snake, and you will strike his heel. Okay, talking to the offspring of the woman, one of those will strike your head and you will strike his heel. What the author's picturing here is a conflict in the future between this human descendant of Eve and this serpent who's the original cause of all the problems. And the result is not good for either of them. He will strike your head, you will strike his heel. Damage is done both ways. To the human, the snake will strike, it will bruise, it will cause damage. But actually, it looks like nothing compared to the damage that will be put in the opposite direction. Can you stick on the next slide for us, James? Is that okay? Okay. I guess it's slightly wrong because it's more of a toe than a heel here, but it's, this is the verse it's, it's talking about. just want to ask you, in a fight, what would you prefer to be? Would you prefer to be the, the heel of a human being headbutted by a snake, or would you prefer to be the head of a snake carrying the full weight of a human being? I don't know what you think. I know which one I'd go with. You know, One of those parties is coming off significantly worse uh, than the other. Okay? One might leave with a bruise, and might even need a bit of treatment for poisoning if fangs are involved. The other is having its skull crushed. Now, thousands of years after this story was written, that conflict played itself out in real time. Jesus Christ, the offspring of Eve, went to the cross. And the, fo- the forces of darkness and evil struck, just like they said. And he was bruised and he was beaten. But As Jesus took blows, he also gave blows. And those blows proved to be decisive. You see, Jesus came back, as we know, on the third day. But he struck a blow that was utterly fatal to his enemy. Paul describes it like this in Colossians 2.15. Talking about the cross where Jesus died, he says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. Just note on that, not talking about Theresa May and the queen there, okay? rulers and authorities, the, the evil powers that lie behind the evil in the world, like the snake. God disarmed them, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus on the cross. There's a triumph on the cross. There's a decisive blow struck to the serpent. And so even as we just laid the groundwork for this series today, I want to end by pointing you towards where I'd hope and pray this is all heading. Because Genesis 1 to 3 is is fascinating. It's an incredible piece of writing and it's incredible in the wisdom that God invests in this passage for us. We do very wise uh, to, to pay attention to that and to look deep and do some work on this because there's wisdom for us. But actually my prayer isn't that we just all get a bit wiser or fill our heads with interesting kind of arguments back and forth here. Okay, wisdom is very important, but actually we want to go to the source of wisdom. And my prayer would be, and I'm going to pray for us all in a minute, is that through this passage we come to love Jesus more. Because here, the beginning, with all of the horror of what's in this passage, which we cannot underestimate, even there at the start, it says, look to Jesus. The serpent crusher is going to come, and he will fix this. We look from the other side of history, looking back and saying, yes, he has, and we get to live in the good of that.